It's the Perry and Shauna podcast on the real life journey with you, reminding you that you are Abba's beloved child and that Jesus has called you into his massive mission to heal the world. After Death is a gripping feature film that dives into what happens after we die, drawing content from real near-death experiences through the eyes of scientists and survivors. After Death offers a cinematic journey into one of life's biggest mysteries, what really happens after we die. Stephen Gray is a filmmaker from Winnipeg, Canada, and he's the director of After Death. It's taken him seven years of meticulous research and work for Stephen to bring this riveting film to life. What got you interested in near-death experiences? And I understand that you've got a deep personal connection with this subject. Talk about that. Yeah. So the reason why I was even interested in near-death experiences was uh, in 2012, my brother-in-law, Marco, who was 36 years old, was uh, killed in a car wreck. And, um, you know, I've been a filmmaker now for about 15 years, but at that time in my life, it kind of, you know, threw me for a loop. I wasn't sure really what to think about, you know, life after or, you know, where is he now? And so as I was kind of going through that grieving process, uh, I came across these stories of, of people who had clinically died and had these experiences and came back. I mean, it grabbed me, it touched me in such a way that like nothing else had. And I just wanted to know more. So, you know, after reading something like 30 books, which included multiple New York Times bestselling authors, I just thought it was so interesting how all these different accounts seem to overlap and paint this kind of bigger picture. And so that, that inspired me to create After Death. It sounds to me like before your brother-in-law's accident, it sounds like maybe you weren't sure about faith and this whole experience and everything after that and researching near that death experiences has brought you into faith. Is that the story? Well, so I actually grew up as a Christian going to church uh, early in my life. And uh, I considered myself a Christian before this accident. But at that time, because of my life was just, it was so chaotic, you know, and a year and a half later, my father-in-law died. My, my wife's family are immigrants from Croatia. There's just four of them. It's my wife's only sibling. And you know, obviously it's her, her dad. So both had passed. Now a family of four becomes a family of two. And all I'm seeing is chaos. And so for me, it was like, that didn't really make sense anymore in my life. I had never faced such trials. And so I just kind of gave up on the idea that there was something after for, for a little while, because it was just hard to reconcile that. These stories uh, renewed my faith and brought me back. Because I think when we go through hard things and it just doesn't seem right and fair, you know, it's easy to question whether there's a God or whether he cares if there is a God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The stories of of a lot of these people in the film, we include 14 different people who clinically die between seconds to an hour and 45 minutes is the longest that we have in the film. They point to this ultimate reality of, of heaven and that there is a loving God and that there's chaos here in the world such as I've seen in my life and many others have as well, you know, there's hope and there's sort of, there's another side to it, right? Like, you know, and the, the side of heaven is is sort of the redemption. It, it's where everything's made good. And, and yeah, it just gives us hope that we can see our loved ones. Dr. Mary Neal's story, she was a spiritual skeptic. Talk about her story spine surgeon. She has her own practice in Wyoming. And uh, she's out kayaking in Southern Chile in, in, uh, in the late 90s. 
with her husband and they're avid kayakers. You know, this is something she does frequently all the time. And so very experienced. And, you know, the typical part of kayaking and going these these waters that she was entering, there's a lot of obstacles and there's waterfalls. That's that's not unusual. But she just happened to go over this waterfall that day where it was a 20 foot drop. And uh, the front end of her kayak actually got pinned under rocks. And the, the pressure of the waterfall kept her fully submerged. So she was underwater for 30 minutes. She was wow. without oxygen for 30 minutes. Wow. Uh, she had drowned and basically a rescue operation at first turned into a body recovery operation. And uh, there was kind of no hope of her coming back, but she did because she was told that it wasn't her time and that she needed to go back. And so she, you know, after, you know, meeting Jesus and and having a full life review, uh, she's told there's there's a purpose for her coming back. So she does. And, you know, it's it's incredible that she comes forward and talks about her experience. First of all, she doesn't need to sell books. You know, obviously she's doing well as a doctor. Um, and she's also a very private person. She's she's introverted. She's not the type of personality to, you know, go out there and make her story known. But she's compelled to do it because this is kind of part of her her story is she has to share what she experienced. So, and she kind of wrote the book assuming that, you know, maybe a few people will read and that's it. My my job is done. And sure enough, you know, it becomes New York Times bestselling book and, you know, she's going around and, and sharing a story. But I think it's interesting where she comes from a, a doctor's perspective, you know, skeptical on any spiritual experiences. And she has a profound life-changing experience. Did that experience move her into the faith? She would say she had a faith before, but it was, she never thought about heaven or anything after. It was just, she's more pragmatic and practical of just like get the job done here on earth. She, actually, when she was under the, under the water, she said there was a, there was a point where she says, well, I think I'm, I think this is it, you know, there's no way I can get out of this. And she said, she just surrendered her will. She said, I just, she's like, God, your will be done. And that mm. was it. Like she wasn't save me, get me out of this mm. for whatever reason. It was just, your will be done. And right at that moment, she said she felt this overwhelming peace mm. and she felt like Christ had come and, and basically like lifted her up out of that kayak. And then she's seeing her body, you know, and she's, she's outside of her body. She's seeing her people downstream who are looking for her. And then, and then she has this, you know, beautiful experience uh, where she's kind of being ushered in towards heaven and having this face to face conversation with Christ. I think you said she had a life review. Yeah. What was that? So life reviews are very common in uh, near-death experiences. Not everyone has one, but it's very common. Hers is is so interesting because she was shown this perspective of kind of 30 degrees out from herself. So she was shown her her life, you know, from the moment of birth to, to the point where she, she had died uh, and all the decisions she made, but also the the lives of people around her. So she saw the backstory and sort of the the whole story of people that were in her life, as well as people that were 30 degrees removed from herself. So these are people she's never met before. She's never going to meet. Hmm. And it was like all of the small and, and big uh, choices that she made in life, good or bad, they had ripple effects on people's lives that far out from hmm. herself. And it was like this amazing perspective that, you know, you, you couldn't get here uh, in this life. What do you mean by that last part? Well, how is she, you know, seeing the backstory of all these people? You know, she's seeing private, you know, sort of details of people's lives. And then um, she was also shown kind of what brought people to a point where they had hurt her or someone she loved and sort of the context of, of what, you know, got someone to that point. 
Dr. Jeffrey Long, he has investigated over 4,000 near-death experiences. What has he found in all of this research? And I know he's done this cross-culturally. Yeah, he has a, a research foundation called the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, which has over 4,000 accounts now. They're from all around the world, you know, multiple languages. It's interesting because there's so many data points where he actually does kind of layer it. And he's able to see sort of like, you know, where does this overlap and does it overlap? And sure enough, uh, the descriptions of what people are reporting uh, do overlap everywhere. There's just, I think there's something like 40 common descriptors of what people are experiencing and they uh, they almost perfectly overlap. Sometimes people have different terms to, to describe, you know, some of the things that they're seeing. But, you know, at, it, at its core, the descriptions are, are more or less the same, which is, I think, kind of just points to this ultimate reality of, of life after. I would assume that Dr. Long's research has been on people of different religions as well. What did he find with people like Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists, you know, people of very yeah. different religions from Christianity? Yeah. So, I mean, personally, that was, was probably one of the most interesting things for me, because, you know, if I'm asking that question, what happens after we die? You know, is this something that just happens in America? Right. And if it is, honestly, I think if, if it was the case where it was only, you know, people in certain countries that were, say, meeting Jesus and then other people in different countries are meeting their deity or whatever, then I think that's kind of a check mark in the atheist category, because it could just be that our brains are absorbing, you know, things around us culturally, and then we're just seeing whatever our brains were subjected to. But actually, uh, it's in contrast to that is what, what people are experiencing. So we actually interviewed three people from India in our film. One was an atheist, former atheist, and two were, grew up Hindu. There's a gentleman in our film uh, who was born and raised in South Korea. He grew up Buddhist. And so, you know, very different kind of religious backgrounds and, and cultures, very removed in, in their lives from Western culture. And yet they're having these experiences that are very different from what their kind of religious upbringing is. Mm. And actually, you know, in Muslim countries, we we actually had interviewed a few people over Zoom, you know, who who had these near-death experiences. And what we're finding is sometimes they're seeing things that are so, you know, contrary or, or different than what their religion was, but they're still surrounded by that in the country they live in. And that's actually sometimes dangerous to come forward and talk about that because, it goes against what their culture is or what their religion is. People don't see uh, various different deities. Uh, I haven't come across anyone who's, you know, met Krishna or Buddha or Muhammad. Hmm. If they name someone all around the world, it's Jesus or it's Christ. Wow. And sometimes it's just simple as as God or the creator of the universe or a man made of light that would they would describe, you know, is is uh, like the equivalent of a thousand burning suns in terms of brightness. But those are common descriptors. You know, when they're saying Jesus or they're saying that, it's, it's, they're kind of overlapping this, the same kind of visual descriptions. That is amazing. I don't know if you've heard about this phenomenon that's going on in the Muslim world where Muslims are having dreams and visions of Jesus. Yes. These are yep. not near-death experiences, but these are Jesus revealing himself supernaturally yeah. to Muslims. And it, it becomes a bridge for them to to come to Jesus. It would be amazing for yeah. you to do a film on that. I, yes. see, some, yeah. I, see, I see some connections here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's all kind of doing the same thing. I think even all of these near-to-the experiences is just kind of God doing something to, to kind of cause people to come back to him. 
that the fact that this is happening all around the world. And yeah, there's there's definitely stories of visions, and it's not just in Muslim countries; it's really everywhere of uh, people having these you know dreams and visions of Jesus. It's amazing. It reaffirms my faith, but you know, you know, coming at it from a skeptical angle. In the film after death, we you know we half the film is kind of the scientific approach too. It's not just believing that whatever everyone is coming forward and saying is true. We're kind of putting it through uh, rigorous scientific tests. So, what's the science behind this? Just talk a little bit about the science. One of the only things that we can test for near-death experiences is what they call out-of-body experiences. So that's where uh, they they step outside of their body and and they're witnessing things that are happening basically in this world around us, which you know we can corroborate to some degree. The things that where they go into heaven or or hell or or all all of those kind of spiritual experiences and otherworldly places. I mean, we can't go there. We have to have you know faith that this is real and what they're talking about is real. So we have a few cases in the film, one being Pam Reynolds. She had a um, basically a three-part near-death experience uh, where she underwent uh, what they call a standstill operation. She had a brain aneurysm, and they did at that time, it was the late 90s, kind of a bit of an experimental surgery where they're, you know, they're just trying to get rid of the, the aneurysm. And uh, the only way to do that is to uh, stop her heart, remove the blood from her brain, which basically becomes this balloon becomes deflated so they can go in and and perform the surgery. It's very complicated and, you know, it's just insane. But she's offline for over an hour. Her brain is completely offline and they're and they've got an EEG monitor hooked up to her brain and it's flatlined the, enti- the entire time. They have to monitor this. If there's any spikes, she becomes awake, you know, it's dangerous to continue performing the surgery. So are you saying that she was there was no brain activity? There's no brain activity. Her heart has stopped. There's there's no breathing. And this is when she has this out-of-body experience during the operation. There were some complications during the operation. And what she saw was basically that her next memory was over the shoulder of the surgeon who had this bone size opening up her, her head. And she recognizes that that's me. You know, mm-hmm. that's me down there. And she's seeing a big part of the operation, which included things like her leg was, the vein was cannulated and they had to switch from one leg to the other when they were sort of circulating the, the blood in the lower part of her body. There was a few arguments that took place in the surgery. Uh, she thought the uh, bone saw was very unusual in its shape. She said it, she identified it as similar to her electric toothbrush, which that is actually the, the exact sort of uh, look of bone saw. It's, very un, it's not the typical you know saw. She said the the tools that were connected to the boat saw reminded her of her dad's socket wrench set, which, you know, structurally is very similar as well. She took offense that they were playing this song, Hotel California, in the operating theater. Oh and she gosh. thought the lyrics were uh, very insensitive because she's like, I don't want to be stuck here forever. She's bringing all this stuff back to the next day when, when she's coming to, and they take the tube out of her mouth and they're just making sure she's, you know, she can remember things. And she's asking about these this stuff, you know, why why did this stuff happen? And the two neurosurgeons that were present during the surgery, they have no idea what to make of it. Because this is when her brain is completely offline. And she's having these things that can be corroborated and that happen in the operating room. There's just kind of like no explanation for that. We also have, you know, we, we talk about a study in the film that was done with 14 patients who were blind from birth who had near-death experiences. And similarly, they had these out-of-body experiences, which the parts could be corroborated, but they're talking about things that happen in visual detail. 
that part of their brain doesn't work. You know, the, the retinas are detached. So, you know, people who are blind from birth don't have visual dreams. They don't know what light is. They don't know what darkness is. They don't know what color is. They've, they've heard of what, say, red and green are, but they don't know what that picture is in, in their brain. But they're having this visual experience and they're relaying all that information back in visual detail. And yet they come back and they're still blind. Talk about Howard Storm's near-death experience. So he's one of the sort of you know big hero stories in the film because I would say he probably had the biggest uh, transition or, or change in his life. So he was uh, an atheist university professor, and uh, I think at that time it was decades into that worldview. There's absolutely nothing, and you know there's kind of a spectrum of atheist thought, but his is there's absolutely nothing. He was confident in that so much so that when he took his last breath, he assumed that there would be nothing after. And so to his surprise, you know, his his consciousness continues on and he's standing in the room feeling better than he's ever felt in his entire life. And he sees his body on the bed, doesn't know what to really make of that, doesn't really want to think about that. He tries to talk to his wife who isn't uh, responding to him. And there's these people in the hallway who are calling his name. And he assumes that they're, you know, medical professionals, that they're going to take him to a surgery room and, and, and help him. He had a perforation in, in, in his stomach and he basically he was uh, the insides of his stomach was bleeding and it was digesting himself from the inside. It was very painful, uh, but it was difficult to continue breathing. And so that's when he went unconscious and he has this continued experience, which eventually turned into actually a hellish experience. But during that period where he's in this absolute darkness, he's offered up this memory of himself as a child going to Sunday school. And I think it was once or twice in his entire life when he was five or six years old. And he uh, and he's taught this very simple song, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. Mm. That's it. And he's wondering why why he's remembering that. And he, he hears this voice tell him to pray. He doesn't even know what that is. You know, he doesn't exercise any kind of prayer life. He doesn't, he hasn't read the Bible. He has no clue what the context is for that. So he doesn't have words. He hears the voice, the same voice, two different times, pray, Howard, pray. So he tries, you know, uh, God bless America, <laughs> anything that kind of came to mind. But when he started, you know, saying these things, these creatures that are around him physically distanced themselves and yet got louder and more sort of vulgar, more angry, but they physically were distancing themselves. And all of a sudden he calls out for Jesus to save him. Mm. And this man of light comes and enters this dark area and pulls him out. And he says like this place he was in was sort of like the void. It was the inverse of light. It was, it wasn't like a starless night or a moonless night. Uh, It wasn't like being in a room with the lights off. It's, it's the inverse of light. So it's complete darkness that we can't experience here on earth is how he he describes it. And all of a sudden this man pulls him up and uh, comes and rescues him out of this place. And he's bringing him towards what he said he figured was heaven. It's this world made of light. And uh, he says that you're making a terrible mistake. That's what I chose. This is what I wanted. Jesus says, we don't make mistakes. You do belong here. That was his way of saying, I chose atheism. I'm not worthy. You know, send me back to that dark yeah. place. I mean, he just says that that's what he chose. That's what he, that's actually what he wanted. So he, he was given this sort of grace to call out that name in this place of sort of where he's in between, right? He's, he's, he's in this dying state and he, and he's on his way there and he's just given this sort of last opportunity to call out. 
Howard has a total life change. And when he comes back, he realizes his life has purpose. He has meaning. You know, there's a reason why he's here. And so uh, he actually left that uh, position because he found it too difficult to continue in the university. And he became a minister. He took a 90% pay cut and he's still to this day a minister, which, you know, that's a huge change (laughs) going from an atheist to a pastor. So when he was rescued by Jesus, did he want to stay with Jesus or was he still like, no, I I still want to go my own way. I want to be an atheist. No, he he wanted to stay, okay. no, he, but he was told he had to go back and there was a reason for him to go back. And and one of, the, one of the things he was told that he had to do was he has to love the people he's with. And so Howard thought that was too simplistic that, you know, that's not a, it's not difficult. You know, what else do you want me to do? And Jesus says, no, 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 I want you just to love the people you're with. That's going to change the world. You know, Howard later came back and realized actually you know, loving people is one of the hardest things. He he says to me, you know, loving someone who loves you back is easy. Loving someone who hates you or doesn't love you back, that's hard. How has making this film and doing all this research and listening to all these stories, how has it changed your heart? I mean, it's given me a profound sense of hope. Uh, it's restored my faith personally, you know, in Jesus. It turns out the Bible seems like it's true. You know, there's John Burke, actually, he came to Christ through near-death experiences, you know, many years ago. He was reading some of the first research on it. And at that time, he was agnostic. And he talks about how he read basically all the world's religions and what he was looking for, all the different texts of the world's religions. He was looking for to see if there's commonalities between what people report near-death experiences of the life to come and what's, you know, what's described in these texts. And he found that, you know, in all these different other religions that there would be like five or six kind of common descriptors of what, of what people describe near-death experiences. But in the Hebrew Bible, when he read it, it was uh, 38 out of the 40 common descriptors were all throughout scripture. He was just like, for him, that was enough evidence that I guess this is, this is true. And this is the faith I need to follow. Mm. For me, it's like, it's deeply impacted. I think there's just so much evidence for that. And the stories, they moved me. Seven years in, uh, talking to these people and getting to know them forever changed the course of my life. Thanks for letting Barry and Shauna walk the real-life journey with you. The content from the Barry and Shauna podcast comes from their live show, Barry and Shauna Mornings on 89.3 Moody Radio, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Reach out to us by texting 800-968-8930 and please subscribe.